This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eva Marie. Alexander's Bridge by Willa Cather. Chapter 3. The next evening, Alexander dined alone at a club, and at about nine o'clock he dropped in at the Duke of York's. The house was sold out, and he stood through the second act. When he returned to his hotel, he examined the new directory, and found Miss Burgoyne's address, still given as off Bedford Square, though at a new number. He remembered that, in so far as she had been brought up at all, she had been brought up in Bloomsbury. Her father and mother played in the provinces most of the year, and she was left a great deal in the care of an old aunt, who was crippled by rheumatism, and who had had to leave the stage altogether. In the days when Alexander knew her, Hilda always managed to have a lodging of some sort about Bedford Square, because she clung tenaciously to such scraps and shreds of memories as were connected with it. The mummy-room of the British Museum had been one of the chief delights of her childhood. That forbidding pile was the goal of her truant fancy, and she was sometimes taken there for a treat, as other children are taken to the theatre. It was long since Alexander had thought of any of these things, but now they came back to him quite fresh, and had a significance they did not have when they were first told to him in his restless twenties. So she was still in the old neighborhood, near Bedford Square. The new number probably meant increased prosperity. He hoped so. He would like to know that she was snugly settled. He looked at his watch. It was a quarter past ten. She would not be home for a good two hours yet, and he might as well walk over and have a look at the place. He remembered the shortest way. It was a warm, smoky evening, and there was a grimy moon. He went through Covent Garden to Oxford Street, and as he turned onto Museum Street, he walked more slowly, smiling at his own nervousness as he approached the sullen gray mass at the end. He had not been inside the museum, actually, since he and Hilda used to meet there, sometimes to set out for a gay adventure in Twickenham or Richmond, sometimes to linger about the place for a while and ponder by Lord Elgin's marbles upon the lastingness of some things or in the mummy-room upon the awful brevity of others. Since then, Bartley had always thought of the British Museum as the ultimate repository of mortality, where all the dead things in the world were assembled to make one's hour of youth the more precious. One trembled lest, before he got out, it might somehow escape him, lest he might drop the glass from over-eagerness and see it shivered on the stone floor at his feet. How one hid his youth under his coat and hugged it, and how good it was to turn one's back upon all that vaulted cold, to take Hilda's arm and hurry out of the great door and down the steps onto the sunlight among the pigeons, to know that the warm and vital thing within him was still there and had not been snatched away to flush Caesar's lean cheek or to feed the veins of some bearded Assyrian king. They in their day had carried the flaming liquor, but to-day was his. So the song used to run in his head those summer mornings a dozen years ago. Alexander walked by the place very quietly, as if he were afraid of waking someone. He crossed Bedford Square and found the number he was looking for. 
The house, a comfortable, well-kept place enough, was dark except for the four front windows on the second floor, where a low, even light was burning behind the white muslin sash curtains. Outside there were window-boxes, painted white and full of flowers. Bartley was making a third round of the square when he heard a far-flung hoof-beats of a handsome cab-horse, driven rapidly. He looked at his watch, and was astonished to find that it was a few minutes after twelve. He turned and walked back along the iron railing as a cab came up to Hilda's number and stopped. The hansom must have been one that she employed regularly, for she did not stop to pay the driver. She stepped out quickly and lightly. He heard her cheerful, "'Good night, cabby,' as she ran up the steps and opened the door with a latch-key. In a few moments the lights flared up brightly behind the white curtains, and as he walked away he heard a window raised. But he had gone too far to look up without turning around. He went back to his hotel, feeling that he had had a good evening and he slept well. For the next few days Alexander was very busy. He took a desk in the office of a Scotch engineering firm on Henrietta Street, and was at work almost constantly. He avoided the clubs and usually dined alone at his hotel. One afternoon, after he had tea, he started for a walk down the embankment toward Westminster, intending to end his stroll at Bedford Square, and to ask whether Miss Burgoyne would let him take her to the theatre. But he did not go so far. When he reached the abbey, he turned back and crossed Westminster Bridge, and sat down to watch the trails of smoke behind the Houses of Parliament catch fire with the sunset. The slender towers were washed by a rain of gold light, and licked by little flickering flames. Somerset House and the bleached gray pinnacles about Whitehall were floated in a luminous haze. The yellow light poured through the trees, and the leaves seemed to burn with soft fires. There was a smell of acacias in the air everywhere, and the laburnums were dripping gold over the walls of the gardens. It was a sweet, lonely kind of summer evening. Remembering Hilda as she used to be was doubtless more satisfactory than seeing her as she must be now. And after all, Alexander asked himself, what was it but his own young years that he was remembering? He crossed back to Westminster, went up to the temple, and sat down to smoke in the middle temple gardens, listening to the thin voice of the fountain, and smelling the spice of the sycamores that came out heavily in the damp evening air. He thought, as he sat there, about a great many things—about his own youth and Hilda's. Above all, he thought of how glorious it had been, and how quickly it had passed, and when it had passed— how little worth while anything was. None of the things he had gained in the least compensated. In the last six years his reputation had become, as the saying is, popular. Four years ago he had been called to Japan to deliver, at the Emperor's request, a course of lectures at the Imperial University, and had instituted reforms throughout the islands, not only in the practice of bridge-building, but in drainage and road-making. On his return he had undertaken the bridge at Moorlock in Canada, the most important piece of bridge-building going on in the world, a test, indeed, of how far the latest practice of bridge-structure could be carried. It was a spectacular undertaking by reason of its very size, and Bartley realized that, 
whatever else he might do, he would probably always be known as the engineer who designed the great Moorlock Bridge, the longest cantilever in existence. Yet it was to him the least satisfactory thing he had ever done. He was cramped in every way by a niggardly commission, and was using lighter structural material than he thought proper. He had vexations enough, too, with his work at home. He had several bridges under way in the United States, and they were always being held up by strikes and delays resulting from a general industrial unrest. Though Alexander often told himself he had never put more into his work than he had done in the last few years, he had to admit that he had never got so little out of it. He was paying for success, too, in the demands made on his time by boards of civic enterprise and committees of public welfare. The obligation imposed by his wife's fortune and position were sometimes distracting to a man who followed his profession, and he was expected to be interested in a great many worthy endeavors on her account as well as on his own. His existence was becoming a network of great and little details. He had expected that success would bring him freedom and power but it had only brought him power that was in itself another kind of restraint he had always meant to keep his personal liberty at all costs as old mckellar his first chief had done and not like so many american engineers to become a part of a professional movement a cautious board member a nestor a nestor de pontibus he happened to be engaged in a work of public utility but he was not willing to become what is called a public man. He found himself living exactly the kind of life he had determined to escape. What, he asked himself, did he want with these genial honors and substantial comforts? Hardships and difficulties he had carried lightly. Overwork had not exhausted him. But this dead calm of middle life which confronted him, of that he was afraid he was not ready for it. It was like being buried alive. In his youth he would not have believed such a thing possible. The only thing he had really wanted all his life was to be free. And there was still something unconquered in him, something besides the strong workhorse that his profession had made of him. He felt rich tonight in the possession of that unstultified survival. In the light of his experience it was more precious than honors of achievement. In all those busy, successful years there had been nothing so good as this hour of wild light-heartedness. This feeling was the only happiness that was real to him, and such hours were the only ones in which he could feel his own continuous identity, feel the boy he had been in the rough days of the Old West, feel the youth who had worked his way across the ocean on a cattle ship and gone to study in Paris without a dollar in his pocket. The man who sat in his offices in Boston was only a powerful machine. Under the activities of that machine, the person who, in such moments as this, he felt himself to be, was fading and dying. He remembered how, when he was a little boy, his father called him in the evening. He used to leap from his bed into the full consciousness of himself. That consciousness was life itself. Whatever took its place—action, reflection, 
the power of concentrated thought, were only functions of a mechanism useful to society, things that could be bought in the market. There was only one thing that had an absolute value for each individual, and it was just that original impulse, that internal heat, that feeling of one's self in one's own breast. When Alexander walked back to his hotel, the red and green lights were blinking along the docks on the farther shore, and the soft white stars were shining in the sky above the river. The next night, and the next, Alexander repeated the same foolish performance. It was always Miss Burgoyne who he started out to find, and he got no farther than the temple gardens and the embankment. It was a pleasant kind of loneliness to a man who was so little given to reflection, whose dreams always took the form of definite ideas, reaching into the future, there was a seductive excitement in renewing old experiences in imagination. He started out upon these walks half guiltily, with a curious longing and expectancy which were wholly gratified by solitude. Solitude, but not solitariness for he walked shoulder to shoulder with a shadowy companion. Not little Hilda Burgoyne, by any means, but someone vastly dearer to him than she had ever been, his own young self, the youth who had waited for him upon the steps of the British Museum that night, and who, though he had tried to pass so quietly, had known him and come down and linked an arm in his. It was not until long afterward that Alexander learned that for him his youth was the most dangerous of companions. One Sunday evening at Lady Walford's, Alexander did at last meet Hilda Burgoyne. Mainhall had told him that she would probably be there. He looked about for her rather nervously, and finally found her at the farther end of the large drawing-room, the centre of a circle of men, young and old. She was apparently telling them a story. They were all laughing and bending toward her. When she saw Alexander, she rose quickly and put out her hand. The other men drew back a little to let him approach. "'Mr. Alexander, I am delighted. Have you been in London long?' Bartley bowed somewhat laboriously over her hand. "'Long enough to have seen you more than once. How fine it all is!' She laughed, as if she were pleased. "'I'm glad you think so. I like it. Won't you join us here?' Miss Burgoyne was just telling us about a donkey-boy she had in Galloway last summer, Sir Harry Town explained as the circle closed up again. Lord Westmere stroked his long white moustache with his bloodless hand and looked at Alexander blankly. Hilda was a good story-teller. She was sitting on the edge of her chair, as if she had alighted there for a moment only. Her primrose satin gown seemed like a soft sheath for her slender, supple figure, and its delicate color suited her white Irish skin and brown hair. Whatever she wore, people felt the charm of her active girlish body, with its slender hips and quick, eager shoulders. Alexander heard little of the story, but he watched Hilda intently. She must certainly, he reflected, be thirty, and he was honestly delighted to see that the years had treated her so indulgently. If her face had changed at all, it was in a slight hardening of the mouth. 
still eager enough to be very disconcerting at times, he felt, and in an added air of self-possession and self-reliance. She carried her head, too, a little more resolutely. When the story was finished, Miss Burgoyne turned pointedly to Alexander, and the other men drifted away. I thought I saw you in McConnell's box with Mainhall one evening, but I supposed you had left town before this. She looked at him frankly and cordially, as if he were indeed merely an old friend whom she was glad to meet again. No, I've been mooning about here. Hilda laughed gaily. Mooning! I see you mooning. You must be the busiest man in the world. Time and success have done well by you, you know. You're handsomer than ever, and you've gained a grand manner. Alexander blushed and bowed. Time and success have been good friends to both of us. Aren't you tremendously pleased with yourself? She laughed again and shrugged her shoulders. Oh, so-so, but I want to hear about you. Several years ago I read such a lot in the papers about the wonderful things you did in Japan, and how the Emperor decorated you. What was it? Commander of the Order of the Rising Sun? That sounds like the Mikado. And what about your new bridge? In Canada, isn't it? And it's to be the longest one in the world, and has some queer name I can't remember? Bartley shook his head and smiled drolly. Since when have you been interested in bridges, or have you learned to be interested in everything, and is that a part of success? Why, how absurd, as if I weren't always interested, Hilda exclaimed. Well, I think we won't talk about bridges here, at any rate. Bartley looked down at the toe of her yellow slipper, which was tapping the rug impatiently under the hem of her gown. But I wonder whether you'd think me impertinent if I asked you to let me come to see you some time, and to tell you about them. Why should I? Ever so many people come on Sunday afternoons. I know. Mainhall offered to take me. But you must know that I've been in London several times within the last few years, and you might very well think that just now is a rather inopportune time. She cut him short. Nonsense! One of the pleasantest things about success is that it makes people want to look one up, if that's what you mean. I'm like everyone else, more agreeable to meet when things are going well with me. Don't you suppose it gives me any pleasure to do something that people like? Does it? Oh, how fine it all is! You're coming on like this. But I didn't want you to think it was because of that I wanted to see you. He spoke very seriously and looked down at the floor. Hilda studied him in wide-eyed astonishment for a moment, and then broke into a low, amused laugh. My dear Mr. Alexander, you have strange delicacies. If you please, that is exactly why you wish to see me. We understand that, do we not? Bartley looked ruffled and turned the seal ring on his little finger about awkwardly. Hilda leaned back in her chair, watching him indulgently out of her shrewd eyes. Come, don't be angry, but don't try to pose for me, or to be anything but what you are. If you care to come, it's yourself I'll be glad to see, and you thinking well of yourself. Don't try to wear a cloak of humility. It doesn't become you. 
Stalk in as you are, and don't make excuses. I'm not accustomed to inquiring into the motives of my guests. That would hardly be safe, even for Lady Walford, in a great house like this. Sunday afternoon, then, said Alexander, as she rose to join her hostess. How early may I come? She gave him her hand, and flushed and laughed. He bent over it a little stiffly. She went away on Lady Walford's arm, and as he stood watching her yellow train glide down the long floor, he looked rather sullen, and he felt that he had not come out of it very brilliantly. End of chapter 3 Alexander's Bridge by Willa Cather